Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July 22nd edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal had some unkind words for the WCAB as it reversed a death award for the family of Gregory Thompson. Here's what happened in the published opinion of Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation versus the WCAB. In 2011, Gregory Thompson was working at High Desert State Prison as a guard when an inmate stabbed him eight times. He was awarded workers' compensation benefits for this injury. As a result of his injuries, he accepted a medical demotion to an entry-level computer analyst position forfeiting his peace officer status. He had a troubled relationship with his new supervisor in this new position, who told him he was not passing probation. In 2013, he committed suicide by means of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The widow filed her application for workers' compensation death benefits. The Department of Corrections did not contest the finding that the death was causally related to the industrial injury. She also petitioned for a finding of fact pursuant to the California Government Code that the death was industrial, thus qualifying her for a PERS special death benefit for peace officers. Labor Code Section 4708 expressly provides that the PERS board shall be joined as a defendant and the WCAB shall determine whether the death resulted from the injury. A surviving dependent is precluded from recovering both the workers' compensation death benefit and the PERS special death benefit at the same time. Despite this petition, the work comp judge never joined the PERS board as a defendant. The widow testified she was indeed receiving the PERS death benefit, which should have precluded a workers' compensation death benefit at the same time. But the award did not include any findings on the petition for finding of fact pursuant to the government code. The work comp judge simply awarded a workers' compensation death benefit of $250,000 and set legal fees and was silent as to PERS. The employer's petition for reconsideration was denied with the WCAB simply saying that CalPERS will determine the issue of any duplicate payments. But the Court of Appeal reversed in the published opinion of Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation versus the WCAB. The appeals court concluded that the statutory directives for a PERS finding are straightforward. It could not find a case, treaties, or encyclopedia on this issue that suggests there is any alternative procedure to the two boards making a joint calculation of workers' compensation and PERS death benefits in a single proceeding. It concluded that as a result of the WCAB's insoicient deferral of the computation issue to the PERS board, its order awarding the full workers' compensation death benefit to the widow cannot stand. And now our fraud report. An Oroville man faces up to five years in prison after he was convicted on charges of workers' compensation fraud. 
59-year-old Howard William Neal was convicted by a jury in Butte County Superior Court on five felony accounts of workers' compensation fraud stemming from an incident in 2009. At the time, Neal was working for an area security company and putting gas in his company-assigned car when another vehicle slightly backed into his car. Neal claimed he was knocked down and suffered back, neck, and leg pain and was subsequently taken off work. But surveillance footage revealed that Neal was not knocked down as he claimed and showed him walking normally, only beginning to limp when he was seen by the other person involved in the fender bender. Neal was then seen by a variety of doctors during the course of his treatment under his employer's workers' compensation insurance, and he repeatedly denied any back, neck, or leg injuries prior to the 2009 accident. However, an investigation later determined he had suffered the same type of back injury while lifting boxes 10 years earlier, which was also treated under the workers' comp system. Prosecutors also showed that when Neal returned to work, he again claimed to have been injured after slipping to his knees after walking over a wet planter. But photos taken on the day of the slip and fall showed otherwise. Neal also reportedly used a cane when he visited doctors, but undercover surveillance showed that he did not use a cane when he worked around his house or with his horses. Neal is scheduled to be sentenced in September and faces as much as $200,000 in restitution. Hospitals, health insurance companies, and universities have all become a frequent target for computer hackers. Profile data, social security numbers, and health records sell quickly on the black market and are now more profitable in that marketplace than credit card information. Illegal data brokers amass large databases of this stolen information that is sold to identity thieves. And now hackers reportedly broke into the massive hospital network of the University of California, Los Angeles, accessing computers with sensitive records of 4.5 million people. Names, medical information, social security numbers, Medicare numbers, health plan IDs, birthdays, and physical addresses all were potentially stolen. That could affect anyone who has visited or works at the university's medical network, UCLA Health, which includes four hospitals and 150 offices across Southern California. UCLA Health made this announcement two months after it discovered the extent of the data breach. Hackers slipped into computers in September 2014, and the next month the university network alarms detected suspicious activity, and UCLA Health called in the FBI for help. At that time, it did not appear that the attackers had gained access to the parts of the network that contained personal and medical information. But that changed in May when UCLA claims it discovered hackers actually accessed computers with sensitive records. The hospital group is now notifying staff and patients, offering them one year of identity theft recovery services. However, UCLA Health stresses it cannot yet be sure that hackers actually accessed or stole the records themselves. 
The FBI is currently trying to determine the nature and scope of the incident. The hospital group also noted it's under near-constant attack by hackers, blocking millions of known hacker attempts each year. UCLA Health said the hack forced it to employ more cybersecurity experts on its internal security team and to hire an outside cybersecurity firm to guard its network. 33-year-old Artak Ovsepian, a Tahunga man who was one of the leaders of a prescription drug conspiracy that used a sham Glendale medical clinic, has been sentenced to 15 years in federal prison. The federal judge called his actions despicable and horrific and said that the scheme preyed on some of those most vulnerable members of society. Ovsepian oversaw the acquisition of expensive antipsychotic drugs with bogus prescriptions and then rebuild the government for the medications over and over. He is among 16 people who have been convicted in relation to the scheme run out of Manor Medical Imaging in Glendale. The investigation was called Operation Psyched Out. The government called it the first in the nation involving an organized scheme to defraud government health care programs through fraudulent claims for expensive antipsychotic medications. After the prescriptions were filled, the drugs were sold on the black market and redistributed then to pharmacies where they'd be used again in new claims. Two others, including 48-year-old physician Kenneth Johnson of Ladera Heights and 49-year-old Narista Gregorian of Glendale, were also convicted after last year's trial. And about a dozen others have been convicted in relation to the scheme. Johnson, the doctor who pre-signed thousands of blank prescriptions, is slated to be sentenced in November. Gregorian reportedly fled the country after her conviction and remains a fugitive. Previously, 34-year-old Liana Lily Ovsepian, 34 of Tahunga, another leader of the ring and manager and owner of Manor, was sentenced to eight years in prison after pleading guilty. Other defendants who were charged in this case include a Pasadena couple whose Huntington Pharmacy in San Marino saw its business grow dramatically due to its affiliation with Manor Medical. Fick Lim, the owner of the pharmacy, is scheduled for trial in this case in September. His wife, Theana Ku, previously pleaded guilty as part of a joint resolution with another case filed against her and her husband. And in regulatory news, the Department of Justice Office of the Inspector General is conducting an audit of the Drug Enforcement Administration's Confidential Source Program. The OIG initiated the audit as a result of its receipt of numerous allegations regarding the DEA's handling and use of informants. The OIG audit thus far has been seriously delayed by numerous instances of uncooperativeness from the DEA. Nevertheless, it has uncovered several significant issues. The audit learned that the DEA was providing federal workers' compensation benefits to confidential informants, yet had not established a process or any controls. 
The DEA even lacked a process for determining eligibility for these benefits. In addition, the DEA DEA did not oversee and ensure that the established pay rate for these sources was proper and inappropriately continued using and paying confidential sources who were also receiving full disability benefits at the same time. In one case, the DEA paid out more than $1.3 million between 1989 and 2012 to the widow of an informant who was killed. Payments have been ongoing in other cases since 1974. In addition, the Inspector General says there is no legal basis for extending compensation benefits intended for federal employees to confidential informants. The law cited by the DEA's justification for the payments does not provide a legal basis for the DEA's position that its confidential sources were appropriately categorized as non-federal law enforcement officers eligible for federal workers' comp benefits. In response, a Justice Department spokesperson said the DEA has placed a moratorium on submitting new workers' compensation claims for confidential sources. The DEA has also determined that although a determination should be based on the facts of each individual case, the presumption should be confidential sources are not employees and should not be eligible for benefits. The DWC will implement a new online QME panel process on October 1st. It will no longer accept or process paper submissions postmarked after September 3rd. The new process requires parties in a represented case to submit initial QME panel requests online after the deadline and they will immediately receive a QME panel. The requesting party will then serve the panel request form, any required documentation, and the QME panel on all parties with a proof of service. The goal for the new online process is to further reduce delays. Christine Baker, the director of the Department of Industrial Relations, said that in most cases the QME panel will issue immediately, allowing the injured worker to schedule an exam with the QME more quickly. The DWC has posted an online QME Form 106 panel request training video and FAQs on the medical unit website. The video demonstration details the way in which represented initial panel requests will be submitted using the new online system. Dusty Overpeck, the administrative director of the DWC, encourages attorneys and claims administrators to view the training video before October 1st. The notices of rulemaking, texts of the regulations, and the initial statements of reasons can be found on the DWC's rulemaking page. The regulations are pending final review with the Office of Administrative Law. The workers' compensation community is watching the battle between cannabis advocacy groups and third-party payment systems, expecting at some point cannabis will be required to treat industrial injuries nationwide. But, surprisingly, Colorado health officials recently rejected a bid by medical marijuana advocates to put cannabis on a list of approved treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder. 
while Colorado has allowed the use of medical marijuana to treat various ailments since 2001, the state's health board has three times refused to put PTSD on its approved list. A similar proposal failed in the state legislature last year. The Colorado Board of Health voted 6-2 to two to reject a petition for PTSD to be included as a debilitating condition that can be treated with medical cannabis. But nine states allow physicians to recommend medical marijuana for PTSD patients. On its website, the health board says medical marijuana may be recommended for sufferers of cancer, glaucoma, cancer, and HIV AIDS. It also says cannabis may be recommended for people who have a chronic or debilitating disease that produces persistent muscle spasms, extreme weight loss, severe pain, and nausea or seizures. The DWC has issued a Notice of Public Hearing for the Medical Treatment Utilization Schedule Proposed Regulations. The proposed rulemaking updates the Chronic Pain Medical Treatment Guidelines and adopts opioid treatment guidelines to the MTUS. A public hearing on the proposed regulations has been scheduled for 10 o'clock a.m. September 1st in the auditorium of the Elihu Harris Building, 1515 Clay Street in Oakland. Members of the public may also submit written comments on the regulations until 5 o'clock p.m. that day. Christine Baker, the director of the Department of Industrial Relations, says that California continues to be on the forefront of evidence-based medicine to treat injured workers, and these regulations will help workers obtain appropriate care. This guideline lists typical chronic pain treatment possibilities alphabetically. For example, on page 40, the guidelines list cannabinoids. As with previous guidelines, this treatment is not recommended for pain. Thus, the DWC is sticking to its prior finding on this issue. And the DWC seems to be getting much tougher on opioid medications. The opioids treatment guidelines are divided into two parts. Part 1 contains the executive summary, abbreviated treatment protocols, and complete recommendations, while Part 2 contains supplemental information. Much of the opioids treatment guideline has stronger language than before, with the word may appearing infrequently, seeming to make tools like the use of the CURES database and urine testing mandatory. DWC Executive Medical Director Dr. Rupali Das said that the DWC is concerned when opioid medications are improperly managed. These are issues of major public health concern that can lead to devastating consequences, including prolonged disability and delayed recovery. She added that the proposed two complementary guidelines provide evidence-based best practices for multidisciplinary approaches to managing chronic pain, as well as factors to consider for safe and effective prescribing of opioids for acute, subacute, perioperative, and chronic pain. The DWC will consider all public comments and may modify the proposed regulations for consideration during an additional 15-day public comment period. The notices of rulemaking 
text of the regulations and the initial statement of reasons can be found on the MTUS rulemaking page. The DWC has posted minor amendments to draft regulations regarding transitioning the California workers' compensation system from the ICD-9 system of diagnosis to the ICD-10 system, effective October 1st. Comments on the revised draft regulations will be received until 5 o'clock p.m. on Monday, August 3rd. ICD-10 is the 10th revision of the International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems, a medical classification list maintained by the World Health Organization. The deadline for U.S. providers to begin using ICD-10-CM for diagnosis coding is October 1st. In preparation for this deadline, it is necessary for the DIR and the DWC to update regulations and forms to refer to ICD-10 instead of ICD-9. Forms affected include the 5021, PR2, PR3, and PR4. The notice and text of the regulations can be found on the proposed regulations page. And in medical news, researchers from several universities discovered how the main psychoactive ingredient in cannabis can be blocked, while several beneficial effects, including pain relief, remain. The latest findings have been published in the journal PLOS Biology. It is hoped the new findings can aid the development of cannabis for medical use without the risks of its unwanted side effects. The potential beneficial medical effects and dangers of cannabis use has rarely strayed from the public's eye. 23 states and the District of Columbia have already passed legislation allowing the use of cannabis for medical use. Oregon has recently become the fourth U.S. state after Alaska, Colorado, and Washington to legalize the drug for recreational use and studies are increasingly delving further into the full effects of the drug. This latest study will add further weight to an already highly contested topic. This new research is important for further development of treatment as it identifies THC's unwanted side effects while maintaining pain reduction. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.